The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies, episode two. That's right. We made it past episode one. Today, I'm talking with Ben Bryan, principal of Reed Rigging, based out of Chicago, Illinois. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing great. Another day above ground right now. That's all we can ask for. Absolutely. So, like I did last week with Yana, I'm going to start with a very, very simple question. Who are you? I'm Ben Bryan. I'm one of the principals along with Vince Cordero here at Reed Rigging in Chicago. And we provide just the rigging aspect for our entertainment rigging services. Just, just the trust, the motors, the hardware, the rentals, the service, not the lights, not the stuff that is outdated by the time you receive your PO you placed a week ago. Like video walls and lights. Absolutely. Um, so you guys are based in Chicago. Reed Rigging was uh, started by Michael Reed, correct? That is absolutely correct. Do you remember when he started? I believe that was about, well, Reed Rigging Inc. was formed in 93, for my recollection and looking through the records. He started his career much, much earlier than that. So I think he started off kind of getting into things right out of high school right in high school so we've, we've got a great legacy here and we're really really pleased to have the opportunity to keep the company going and bear his name still absolutely when did you start with the company i started in 2014 so i've been working in rigging since 2006 at another company then the opportunity came up to move up here back home with my family and work with Reed Rigging and that's when I came on board here. How, so you mentioned you started uh, in 2006. How did you get into the rigging industry? You know, I'm going to steal one of your lines from the first episode. It's not always a straight line, a straight path for somebody to get into rigging. And it sure wasn't for me either. I started with product photography for a career and started doing some recreational rock climbing. And one of my stylists was dating a rigger at a rigging company locally and said, you know, you like to climb stuff and they always need climbers. So you ought to give these folks a call if you want to give it a try. And uh, I did a quick little Google search and found a company that was looking for head riggers for a national database. And I shot an email off saying, hi, I have no experience, but I think I can do this. And then, a few weeks later, I got an answer back and wound up going in for what I thought was an interview. It turned out I was told I was late. We start at 10 o'clock. Don't be late next time and go unload that truck. Trial by fire. Yes. Um, how, you know, in that process, how long do you think it was before um, you started doing things that were... Uh, what people would consider rigging versus unloading the truck. I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is how was your right. ed education process for on the job training? Um, 
It was, yeah, that's a good point. It was a little bit more um, involved than that, but not much. Uh, the first installation rigging job I was sent out on, we were having the morning meeting in the shop and I'd worked cleaning up and worked with the installers and the installation department some, and the manager looked around and said, well, we can't send you looking to a guy with stars tattooed on his forehead to this church installation. And he looked at me and said, you're going out to do the install today. So I, I went out on the install and I started again, just trial by fire working on the job. The great part is that everybody there, when I asked a question, they gave me the answer and a couple more answers that I didn't even know I needed to ask. So everybody was really helpful to provide me the knowledge I needed and support I needed but there wasn't a structured training program. And that's one of the things that I think we've got a real potential for improving in our industry. Which, you know, kind of leads into one of the questions that I, I tend to ask is, um, what are the areas within the industry that you think we need improvement? So if training is one of those, I know that you guys at Reed Rigging run training uh, courses, uh, and have done so both at your location in, in Chicago as well as elsewhere. Talk a little about how your trainings work, what your goal is with the training, and um, just kind of your philosophy on training. I think training is so important right now. The first points I pulled uh, in an actual arena, I was told, walk up there, go clip into the lifeline, send down your rope, pull it up, make the basket, put your foot in the bowling. And as I was doing that, I didn't understand fully. Nobody gave me the whole rundown on that. I'd never tried that before. And thankfully it was only about 130 foot grid. So it wasn't super high or anything. And I realized the first three points were really hard because I was just pinching my foot against the bottom flange of the beam and wrapping my foot in the bowling. It wasn't until the third or fourth point I looked over at the bay across from me and I saw somebody just lock their legs straight in the bowline to be able to make the shackle, make the baskets. And I thought, oh, that's the easier way to do it. So that's really where I fall back on seeing a need for training in the industry. There are too many times that we assume somebody has the knowledge they need. and We don't take the opportunity to give them the training they need to be successful, let alone be safe. So in our training programs, we focus a lot on the hands-on elements. We presume that you've come here to the training class with an interest in learning. So we encourage everybody to ask questions. If we skip over something that you don't understand, we're here for you to answer the questions you have. And we've got a training structure in place that will send people up on the wire rope letters, walk the beams, use the lifelines, clip on clip, transfer from catwalk space over the handrail onto the lifelines and pull the points and walk everybody through that in a safe manner. Uh, a little bit closer to the ground than 130 feet too, so we can observe them and communicate with them as they need to. I think we've got more people interested in actual learning than we have people making the commitment to provide for the industry. We don't see training at our facility as part of our main revenue stream. It's, it's a loss for me whenever I host a training camp. And what I gain out of it is the knowledge that we're sharing some of the information that people said, hey, I want to learn this. And that's, that's our opportunity to improve the industry's training and safety as a whole.
Absolutely. And I think one of the challenges when you're breaking into the business and you're learning on the job site is you have that time constraint. You know, there's the schedule that you have to maintain, which is part of the reason why I think there are some who've been in the industry find it challenging to uh, to take time to to teach a, a critical element because they're feeling the stress of meeting the schedule. They have a job to do and that job is getting the show and not necessarily to train other people. So I certainly think the opportunities of trainings outside of the work environment are helpful. Um, and that's something I've, I've, as a trainer myself, really appreciated was the places where the students get the opportunity to climb, to, to physically, you know, talking about a concept is one thing. A lot of people who get into our industry are, are, they learn by doing. So giving them the opportunity to walk an I-beam, to pull a point, even if it's 10 feet off the ground, I think is extremely valuable. Um, so in your, your own journey throughout rigging and getting into to the industry, you had mentioned that uh, you worked with some good crews on the installation side that were willing to teach you things. Are there any individuals that you would call mentors, people that you think, uh, to use the term, took you under their wing to help you learn the craft? How long do we have in this top podcast? I mean, as long we, as we want. I could just, I could just keep throwing names at it, but I'm just going to say that really there is not anyone that I, who I've encountered that said, no, I'm not going to help you. I'm, I'm threatened by you or such. Um, if, if that happened, I just must've dismissed them and just, moved on to the next situation. I wasn't going to hang up on what wasn't happening for me. So I just kept seeking out the people who had the interest and the willingness to teach me these things. Um, gosh, it was, it's really just everyone I've encountered up until and including when I came here to read rigging. I mean, Michael Reed just jumped right into it. It's like, hey, we do this this way. How do you guys, how have you learned it before? And he was asking questions. Uh, one of the things that I love about Michael Reed's statement on training was he was a great friend of Rocky Paulson also. And he said, you know, if Rocky was teaching class tomorrow, I'd sign up and I'd go. So when I hear people like Mike, Michael Reed saying, I want to go take a class and learn something. I mean, that just, everybody has something to teach somebody else, whether they know they're going to learn a particular subject or if it's a complete non sequitur. I think we've always got the opportunity to learn. So we've, we've seen folks throughout the industry just really supporting people. We need to just see and foster that more. Along those lines of, of building the, the culture of training, and I think a lot of us recognize that part of that training is tied to safety, Reed Rigging is a sponsor for the Event Safety Alliance Safety Summit um, and has been for the last few years. How did that come about and what are, why was it important for Reed Rigging to become involved with that? The first time I heard about the Event Safety Alliance was, I guess, shortly before I came up here to Reed Rigging but I didn't know exactly what it was. I went to, I think one of the um, 
plaza regional or plaza pop-up shows or I forget what it was they called them throughout the year and met some of the folks from the event safety alliance and heard about it but where I went back to didn't have an interest in or a commitment to it and it just seemed like something that was the right fit is the people stepping up saying we see this need we see this problem so we're going to put ourselves out there and start this organization so when i came up here to read michael was already involved in it he was familiar with it and we spoke about it in meetings and just as part of the culture and the conversation that was happening here and the opportunity came up to attend the 2015 summit there at Rockland, it's and myself and Wade Hinshaw went and we've gone back every year since. And every year it's been better and bigger and more diverse and it's growing and people are having great conversations about safety and everybody's interested in being there. So what draws me to it is everybody's doing this as a volunteer. It's not a standard trade show where people are just selling the newest left-handed smoke bending widget that you need to move your truss or anything like that. It's people engaged in talking about safety in all aspects of the industry, not just rigging, but mental health safety and first aid, crowd safety. So we realized there was an opportunity for us to put our money where our mouth was to show the support for the industry, for the organization. And we just volunteered and said, hey, I shot an email over to Jacob Work and said, we'd like to be part of this. What, what can we do to be part of this? And we're gonna continue that as long as we can. I think something you just mentioned is, is uh, something I'll, I'll reiterate, which is, or not reiterate, but kind of work off of that, um, having a group of people together to talk about safety and it wasn't just about rigging. I think one of the things that I've always struggled with is there are times where you want to make a, cl a clear delineation between departments to say, you know, here's the rigging over here and here's all these other things. However, safety certainly is something that overlaps everything. And there's, there's certain topics that are intertwined within all those different departments to say um certainly i think there's a, not a perception but the truth is a lot of rigging is done at height and the leading cause of injuries on any job site is falls so we're certainly creating more risk because we're working at height which means riggers tend to be a little more in tune with the need of safety you know communication and in training than maybe some other fields are just because of the nature of the beast. So I think it's a, a now I agree with you in terms of the, the sentiment of going to the summit and not, it's not a sales pitch, um, which is certainly nice. And, and, and it is very diverse. Um, there was a conversation the other week on one of the webinars about uh, weather and on-site monitoring of weather and uh, the dis in the discussion it came up about um, someone had learned at the event safety summit during an hour-long session about weather that the weather app on your phone although maybe convenient for telling you it's raining out when you look up and you see you know the gray clouds and it's raining on you however it's only a small little piece of data and there's some technical aspects where the radar on your app is only getting you a small slither 
of what's available to a meteorologist. That hour session was just something a bunch of people said, hey, that sounds like a cool topic, and they went, and you learn a little thing. Um, so sort of, there are a lot of opportunities at the summit to kind of broaden your knowledge base. Um, so we talked about a little how you got into the business uh, and and started working with Reed Rigging. So a question that I'll ask that is uh, unrelated to the business side is you have any good stories about, you know, the biggest rigging horror story that you have, a situation you walked in and you just went, oh my, and either had to make a correction or something that just really unsettled you or and any good war stories? Oh, gosh. Yeah, there have been some out there. Um, I guess the best part, the best thing I can say is I haven't seen the classic, if it bleeds, it leads scenario. And that's what I'm thankful for. Um, we've had situations where things just weren't going right and we had to sort of call an all stop let's just regroup let's get on the same page here clearly we're missing some communication but i guess one of the cases that's an easy one it's not that dramatic or anything i was walking on site just to observe and touch base and shake hands with the customer and thank them for having us part of their their project for a festival. And one of the things that we took away from safety and with the event safety Alliance is, you know, we do support people wearing the high vis and helmets. We've got a lot of staff here that came through rope access training. It's, it's simple. Part of the Sprat exam is if you walk into the fall hazard zone without your helmet, ding, you're off the site. It's that simple. So it's, it's hard hats and high vis for us as a company when we're on site, if I'm walking onto the stage. And, you know, there are some of the crew that don't subscribe to that, not necessarily our crew, um, but we're not in charge of the whole project. So the best we can do is offer them the opportunity to use the safety gear that we've got. If they want to use it, we set the example. I'll always get some sneers and jeers when I walk on site with my hard hat and high vis and I wasn't even onto the stage steps in the situation and I heard the terrifying sound of chain running out and a motor had been connected, motor body up, it had been hoisted up and that distro was bumped in the process. So it was a flying distro and had the phase select on it as a switch and whoever was operating it didn't do a quick bump check to see that the chain was going in the right direction. They were just holding their finger down on the go button and it was going down, not up. And it just pulled right past the limit like it does and just whoop, dropped the chain down to the floor. And uh, I, I looked around, I just did the quick little tap on my noggin and said, we've got more hard hats if anybody wants them. So that's, we got lucky. Uh, I know lots of people out there have seen terrible, horrifying things on the road, but I want to make sure I don't have those horror stories coming up, but I want to make sure nobody has those horror stories if we can avoid them. So we, we just keep trying to lead by our example and listen to other people and learn from what they've experienced too. 
I think uh, sorry to be a left sorry to be a letdown on that one there. No, no, but I think that brings up an, an, a critically important point, and I try to to teach this to everyone. Uh, when it comes to hard hats, I think again we try to keep the rules simple. So if there's someone working above head, you got to wear your hard hat. I believe that's what a majority of people in our business believe is the rule. When and at least in the States, what OSHA says is anytime you're exposed to the potential of head trauma. So a, a typical example is, oh, why would I need to wear a hard hat if I'm up on the structural steel? If I'm pulling the points, no one's working above me. I'm working above everyone else. I don't need to wear a hard hat. But your story uh, emphasizes that you don't have to wait for someone to be working above you. It was just equipment that was above you. You were in a hazard zone. There was potential for head trauma. Um, and the appropriate thing would be to be wearing hard hats. Um, so I think that's a, a, a good takeaway from your story. The other thing that um, popped into my head was maybe something we can take out of our current uh, health crisis situation is obviously more and more people have become comfortable with wearing face masks when they go out in public. And I think a large reason people are resistant to it is because they feel foolish. They think they look stupid wearing this mask. I think that's the same attitude when people were wearing hard hats. They feel stupid wearing the hard hat. They look silly. They look silly in high vis. Maybe this process that we're currently going through will help break that side down and people become more comfortable with, hey, it may look silly to wear PPE, but it's the right thing to do because it keeps you safe. And it goes back to that idea of everyone gets to go home at the end of the, the work call or the end of the day. Um, yeah, to that point about wearing the hard hats when you're the upbringer, coming back to the Sprat model, if you're on rope, you're the top guy up there, generally speaking, but it's still requirements. It's still a requirement to wear a helmet and it's just a good idea. So you can always swing fall into something. You could have a fall while you're walking a beam and trip and hit your head on your way down before you even engage your lanyard. You could, there's all sorts of headache scenarios where you could be working on the ground and trusses floating. You turn around, you smack your head into it. There's all sorts of opportunities to bash your head around on the job sites where we work all the time. So we found that having a nice, comfortable hard hat helmet just makes it easier. Everybody wears it. They've come so far to be so comfortable. They're not cost prohibitive. It's yeah. And, and something that we can add. There are a lot of misnomers about, oh, if I wear a hard hat, I'm going to get too warm. Well, if you're working outdoors, actually, the hard hat makes your head cooler because it um, stops the sun from directly shining on your head. It, you mentioned walking steel and falling. The, the example I usually give people of why it's a good idea to wear a hard hat when you're climbing steel is if you fall and you have to be rescued, you're already in a condensed time frame. You know, the, the, the concept with a fall arrest rescue is to get the person down as fast as possible. Well, if you hit your head, 
on the beam on your way down and now you're bleeding, you've just condensed that time frame because now it's much more severe and you're going to have suspension trauma that's going to complicate the process, um, you know, of, of an open wound. So I think if you, uh, with hard hats, there's a lot of logical progression. If you just think it through of, Hey, you know, this could happen and, and it's like anything else. Is it likely to happen? Maybe not, but if it does, you want to be prepared and be protected so that, you know, you're not taking a bad situation and, and making it worse. Um, yeah, I think there are takeaways for us from the cons general construction area too. It's standard for everyone to wear a hard hat there. and They're not working at height. They're not, just because they have a hard hat on doesn't mean they're getting in a bucket lift or walking beam or anything. It's just standard procedure. You brought this up and it just dawned on me, my hard hat is white, but it's not clean. I don't go out on the jobs all the time anymore, but I have all different colors of paint scuffs and marks and dings and scratches on it. And I've never taken a fall in it. I've never had anything dropped on me in it. But I look at that every time I look at a scratch or a paint rub mark on my helmet, that would have been my head. I could have just bumped into the edge of a piece of ankle iron crawling through a ceiling. Mm -hmm. I mean, the opportunities to bash your head on something are almost endless. And as far as taking a fall too, the one of the horror stories you asked about earlier, well, I've got a very close friend. It's not from a rigging scenario, but he was out rock climbing with his buddy and we were getting ready for a trip later that fall up to the Gunks in New York. And I had to find out later that week that he got a helicopter ride, but they only had to hurry and make it a rescue, not a recovery, because he had a helmet on. He fell about 40 feet and landed on a boulder at the bottom of the climb and smashed his head, but he had his helmet on. And that's why we can still talk about it. He's He's still here because he's wearing a helmet. Well, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, he is still around and yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's just the easy things to do. And, and you only have to back your head into a sprinkler head on a, in a theater once before you realize, ah, I should have been wearing my hard hat. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's a, a, one of the questions that I'm going to ask everyone is, um, I know you're an uh, ETCP recognized trainer, correct? And you correct. are you are ETCP certified, correct? Uh, both arena theater, just arena, just arena. Never had much life in theater. We won't hold that against you. Um, Thank you. When did you uh, take the test? Was it? 2009 maybe i think somewhere around there okay so 2011 did you uh what did you think of taking the exam i think one of the topics that i'll bring up is i think there are a lot of people who are afraid of taking the exam because they may not be good test takers or they're intimidated by it um do you have any memories about preparing to take the test? Any anxiety related to it? Were you, you know, not that worried about it? Oh yeah, there, there's anxiety there. There's the anxiety of will I pass this? Do I, do I know enough? To do I have the chops to do this? And 
I took it as a pencil and paper exam at LDI. And so my flight out there was reviewing formulas and making sure I knew it front to back. And well, I, I apparently knew enough, but I know there's still questions I could have improved upon. And I think it's a great, great program that we've got here, uh, ETCP. I think it was a real testament to the crew, the Bill Sapsis, Ed Kish, Rocky Paulson, Michael Reed, John Blake, everybody involved in the beginning process of writing the exam and coming together and saying, hey, let's, let's do this. Let's make this a reality. And now I think it's grown into a recognized program. It's, it's just got to go forward. It's, it's got room to grow. And I think we've got the opportunity to keep engaging with people. We've had changes in technology in the equipment we use. Um, we've had changes in some work practices and it's great that it keeps evolving. So I'm excited to see that it's not a static organization, that it's not, this is the way we taught it once. This is all there'll ever be. This is all you'll ever know. The fact that it's still in process and still improving is great. I think I'm really excited to see where the future leads the rest of the ETCP process. Um, the exam, yeah, I've, I've seen some rigors out there. I've talked to some that were really terrified of it. People with 30 years of experience on the road, but they just weren't used to taking a test. They had trouble with the format or something, so they shied away from it. And we worked with some of them. We wanted to have them in our fold of freelancers. So we said, hey, here's the practice exam link. Go sign up for it and take the practice exam. We'll work with you. And they, they were a lot better prepared than they thought they were. They were just not used to that environment. And so they came through and they took the exam they passed right away. So we're, we're really glad to see people still accepting it and still moving into it as a recognized qualification. So we, we just want to keep seeing people who maybe have shied away from it in the past or they haven't needed it in the past. Well, it, it's the opportunity to be involved in an organization and a process that needs their knowledge. So we, we really want to see all the old crusty road guys who say they don't need it. Come on, jump on board, please. The water's fine. Yeah. And I think when the program was first rolled out, there was a lot of misconception of, of the intent and that very quickly there was a perception that every rigor needed to be certified. And that wasn't the case. It was the, the head rigor on our crew that you would have one of the group who might have that certification to be able to help uh, guide the rest of the team to say, um, and there's a lot of, of resentment of, I don't need a test to tell me I'm a good rigger. And, and I think that's part of the reason why the qualification process is what it is, where you need a certain number of points to be able to qualify to take the test. And a significant portion of those points has to come from work experience. You can't you can't qualify just on on education alone. There's a balance. Um, so, uh, one of the questions I asked last ep episode uh, that I'll ask you is: um, 
besides dropping something, what is one of your biggest fears as a rigger? Now, I know you've mentioned that you don't spend as much time actually rigging these days. You run a company. Um, but are there some fears that you still have within the industry? And then I'll tie a second question into that, which is where are some of the other areas you had mentioned training earlier that you think we need to see improvement, whether it's technology or cultural change within the, within the industry? Oh, what are some fears now still sending out the wrong gear to a job, sending out transposing numbers on my trust counts, not counting the right number of trust bolts, not just the little simple things, the devil in the details. I mean, it's, we'll send out a tour and it's like, oh, did, did we send enough remote extensions? Did we send enough spares? I mean, you don't always send a spare because you're afraid that your gear is not going to hold up to the rigors of the road, but forklift driver can run over a cable and all of a sudden now you don't have that remote extension to run your motors anymore. So I guess the fears are making sure that we look through the client's requests and needs and understand them well enough before we go out and load the trucks that they have everything they need on site. We don't ever want to get that 3 a.m. call. Where, where's my basket? Or where's my case of shackles? Where's, where's my remotes? Where, why aren't my remote extensions packed with my remotes? These kind of things that I guess that's the fear of letting people down who have all the pressure of producing the shows and producing the live events. They're under so much stress with the time constraints, like you mentioned earlier, there's not a buffer in our industry for an event to go badly. There's not a buffer in there for the bus to get a flat tire or a truck to hit a bad section of ice and slide off the road. It's We're so close to everything that we do. Everything's got to run so smoothly. It's so hard to imagine that you would be responsible for a show not happening or not having the right piece of safety gear and somebody not realizing they can just call a stop to it and not waiting for it. So we, yeah, that's what keeps me up at night is making sure we get the right gear or the right equipment, quantity or spec to a customer in time. Ways we can improve that. I'm seeing a lot more value in spending more time on pre-production for shows, a lot more conversation. A customer calls up and says, well, I need you to rig this for me. Okay, let's, that sounds great. Let, let's have a full conversation about why you need this, what you think you need, and what else. Give me the whole scope of the project so I can see what we're going to run into as riggers, that we can head off a problem before it becomes one on site. So we're seeing more and more value in building things and drafting programs like Vectorworks and putting all the pieces together. And we've done that. We had a repeat customer that we've done some video wall installations for static trust, ground support, permanent installations with video walls. And just having that conversation with them and, oh, well, which video walls are you running? Oh, okay, well, now we realize that you've got a different size panel, so the rigging point is at a different location. So we need to get a custom piece of trust made that's two and a half inches taller so that the center of your pipe doesn't line up with where we have a corner block and we can't attach to it. So just really taking the time to have the communication with everybody involved in a project and creating a platform that's 
smooth and helpful to have those conversations and get all the details worked out. Now, does that mean it's always going to go smoothly on site? No, we, we know there's still going to be a hiccup. We're going to miss something. Even if you go out and you do a site survey, you're going to find out that something changed between the time you did the survey and by the time the sprinkler guys came in and they, they went off the drawings instead of they had to make a audible call to change the plans on site and you didn't get that memo. So, but the more we can be prepared by better communication throughout a project and asking questions and listening to answers from everybody involved, it really helps us at the end of the day to have a project go smoothly and safely. I think that's uh, probably an area that a lot of um, young riggers don't have the opportunity to be exposed to is that pre-production phase. Um, when you get into the business, usually you're uh, delegated to the physical component of, of the load in and load out or operation of a show. Um, unless you work full time for a rigging and staging company, you, you may not get that opportunity of that pre-production component. So I think that's a, a valuable insight. Um, one of the things we, uh, we were talking about with the ETCP, you know, I'll, I'll mention again is every five years you have to uh, renew your certification and part of that process is continuing education. So as an ETCP certified um, rigor, what are some of the things that you do for continuing education? Oh, I'll sit in on the webinars um, that are available now. Some of the companies are providing webinars in this new environment we find ourselves. Um, even if it's just two credits here, two credits there. Um, every time we have a hoist school come through with Dave Carmack, um, sitting in on that and just spending the time hearing his horror stories from the field and learning more about hoist. I've been doing motor schools with Dave Carmack for over a decade now and it's always great to learn something new about the Lodestar. I mean, if there's somebody who's got a wealth of knowledge on the Lodestar more than him, I'd love to meet him. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying they're not out there. I, I would like to meet them. But Dave's been a great supporter for continuing education. I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, the folks, Eric Rouse and Homer Beef, doing their ground support uh, classes and conversations with Clark Reader Engineering. I missed out on that one. I mean, every two points here, two points there. And it's not just about the points. It's about learning from these people who have the experience. So I'm not, I'm not going to stop just when I hit my number of points required. I just want to keep learning about all these things that are out there, different ways to solve the same problem we've encountered. Yeah, that that desire to, to gain more knowledge and and continually improve is certainly uh, something that will um, benefit individuals as they grow in this industry. So you, you're the principal of a rigging company, um, which is certainly a, a success in its own right. Are there any dream jobs that you would have as a rigger um, I think 
for a production rigger or someone getting into the business, it might be easy to say, oh yeah, I want to be the tour rigger on the biggest festival there is or the biggest rock tour or whatever. Um, but are there any, uh, you know, dream positions that you would like to do within the industry of rigging? Oh, that's great. I, I want to keep teaching. I want to keep learning and I want to keep providing the opportunity for people to get into the industry. We have a lot of people who will call up and say, hey, where can I get some training? Where can I get training for certification? And we'll have the conversation with them saying, well, you know, we there isn't a training for certification program right now. It's There is a certification program. The ETCP is there. But there aren't training courses out there. So I, I'd like to see us as an industry develop a training program for people who are interested. So let, let's get these kids coming out of college. Let's teach them right the first time. Let's dispel some of these myths that exist in the industry. Let's give them the opportunity to learn, not just on the job. So they've come out of their classroom environment and they've learned a lot about what their instructors know. But if they've had three or six instructors, that's a far cry from the number of different people working in the industry who have different scenarios or knowledge of different tips or tricks from different venues. And let's, let's get more people involved in training and internship programs and see if we can get people who are itching for this information and learning on the path to join the ETC program in one way or another eventually if that's the goal of their career let's help them get there every time we have somebody through our company who moves on for whatever reason they change careers they go to a different company we say we're so glad that you're moving on we're so glad that you're improving your mission your life position so that you're satisfied with what you're doing. I'm sorry we weren't the right fit, but we're thankful for the opportunity we had to work together and we wish you nothing but the best. The more we can help people with that, that's that's where I'd like to say it. That's what I'd like to spend more time doing. I think that emphasizes a, a good point of you as a, a organization, as a company can gain from your employees as much as they can gain from the opportunity have of having worked for you that um you know people to use the, the stereotype oh it was a stepping stone it got me you know it gave me some information to get where i'm going but i think there's a, a negative connotation to that of you know being stepped on versus it was a a life lesson i learned to uh, tools while I was in that position that enabled me to continue to go where I wanted to go in my, in my personal journey as a rigger. Um, and I think that's uh, something that a lot of individuals don't think about is, well, you were a valuable member of the team and the company got something out of it as well. And it wasn't just a, oh, we, we turned revenue off of it, but we learned something. Maybe you taught the rest of the, the team there a trick that you have learned somewhere else. So there's that uh, community growth to say. Yeah, Vince Cordero, the other principal here, um, he, he and I have always gelled since the first second we met and we realized we 
had the same goals and aspirations for the company. And your analogy there of the stepping stone, well, yeah, I, I never feel stepped on, never even think about it. But now you bring that up, I realize, well, that's my opportunity to be a stepping stone for somebody. That means I kept them from falling in the water. I kept them safe. I kept them dry. So that's, that's something I can be thankful for. That's, that's a beautiful way to think about it. Um, so here's a question that wasn't written down beforehand. Um, how is it working with a business partner in, in the business? Um, and I ask that as, as a person who runs my own business, the only partner I have is, is my dog and you know, that's my supervisor. Um, Reed Rigging is a, a large company. It, it's known nationally. It has uh, a long history. Um, and you guys do some very large projects. Um, what are some of those benefits of working with a partner in that environment? Oh, man, it's great to have Vince. Uh, and I hope he'd say at least half the same things about me. But that's okay. It just means I need to earn them if he doesn't. Um, no, it's great to have two heads on a project and not just for delegating the work. He's got that rental department just dialed. It is humming along smooth, not a hitch because he's been involved with it for so long and he knows all the ins and outs and how to anticipate what his clients need and the experience there that I don't have in the rental world of things. So it, it's a great team effort together. And when we're working on a project together, we'll we'll get to the point where sometimes we'll say, you know, you, you've got this whole thing. I'll just back off and you've got it all. I, I don't even need to be here. Why am I bothering? And I remind him when we get to those times or if we get to situations where we're arguing about something, well, I thought we would do it this way. Well, no, I was looking at it that way. We both realized that, you know, if we agreed about everything all the time, one of us wouldn't be necessary. But since we don't always agree on everything, it's great that we can have the conversations and we'll bring in the production team on a project saying, hey, what, what does this do to you guys as a production department? How do you feel these impacts on site? Because you're working with the local crew and we're steps removed from that. So let's make sure we set up all the players in the company for success instead of having to fix something on the fly or on site. So, and I. I can't imagine not working with a partner, not working with Vince in this endeavor. That's awesome. It sounds like you guys have a good, uh, a good relationship of checks and balances and, and it enables you to, to vet things uh, thoroughly. You know, is this the right choice, whether it's a, you know, capital expenditure on new equipment or, Hey, should we go after this project? You know, is it, a value project. What is, you know, speaking of equipment and the, and in your inventory, is there a tool or a new piece of equipment, a fancy piece of trust that you guys have just recently acquired that you guys all, all enamored with? Um, anything exciting from the, the tool and inventory standpoint? Wow. Uh, um, one of the coolest things we bought is really kind of dull and boring, uh, but we bought it a few years ago was a new load test stand for testing our motors for maintenance and being able to, to do the dynamic test on our chain hoist for ourselves and for other companies. So it, it's not glamorous. It's not 
shiny new kit that we got a tour because we have it, but it's something that we rely on to keep our close to 700 motors in shape and a couple hundred motors from outside service each year. So that's one thing we really enjoy. Um, for the shiny new flashy object, we're still getting our heads wrapped around the Kinesis Apex system we bought last year. It's been fantastic. And we're really excited to see where the partnership goes with the software development side of things now that Kinesis is a Tate company. Right. We've had automation in the system for a number of years now, and it's just time to, like I said, make that capital expenditure and jump into the market of newer, smoother, safer, more manageable equipment. So the Kinesis Apex system was the big one we jumped in on last year. We had an opportunity to justify it basically. We're, we're glad we made that call. The automation was something that we always wanted to keep improving on and we would have a bid come through and, oh, we know we can get this gig, we can get this tour if we have this piece of kit, but the industry doesn't allow for getting the job before you get the equipment. So it was definitely a, if you have it, it'll go out the door. But if you don't have it, you won't get that job. So we just sort of had to bite the bullet and get the kit in hand. And yeah, we just need to get out the door. We need all the festivals to come back around, all the tours to come back around for everybody's health and safety, of course. But we really like the opportunity to work with Kinesis and Tate. They've been very supportive and we hope to see see that continue how uh, for those who are not experienced with it how would you describe the difference between traditional rigging and automation it's certainly a topic that i personally uh want to delve more into and i do have some guests lined up that will talk about it but as a supplier how would you delineate between those two sides? I guess a good comparison would be something along the lines of a paper airplane and a B-1 bomber. Uh, they both fly through the air, but well, you're not going to confuse the two. The automation has a whole nother layer, several layers, layers upon layers of concerns of double checking and contingency planning and safety precautions. And, and it's, it's a different ball game. It's, it's something that is overlooked a lot of times. I think um, it can be overcomplicated, but if you get the right crew together and you get the right mindset of always looking for problems where something could go wrong in this scenario, it helps out a lot not just blindly accepting that everything's going to be perfect, but okay, planning through what's our recourse. If we have to hit the e-stop, how do we recover after that? What's the next step in that? Just like fault protection, we're pulling a point. You don't just walk the beam. You still have to plan and prepare for a worst case scenario. So equipment redundancies, processes, communication protocols, everything is just, it's a whole new level to be involved with. We've talked about a lot of topics. We've talked about uh, the need of training and of certification. Are the, and I realize with the current climate, 
talking about where's the industry going is a, a difficult question because right now with everything on hold, we don't know where anything is going, let alone rigging. We don't know where shows are going. We don't know when we're going to be able to do shows, how we're going to be able to do them. So I'll phrase the question this way. Prior to the current situation, where did you see rigging in the entertainment business going? Were there any trends of things? You, you offer a unique perspective of you guys do rigging for tours as well as installation um, and rental. So you kind of get an insight to uh, several phases of the industry. Um, prior to this, was there anything that you could articulate about the direction of the rigging business? Equipment just keeps getting heavier or the, the shows keep getting bigger and heavier, even though the equipment gets lighter and more automated. Um, I think we keep seeing interest in improving efficiencies, whether it's the simple things of where do we position the hoist in the case so that it's easier to lift and less strain on the body on the show. Um, I think the, all the little advances and things like that just We've seen manufacturers come out with like Gallagher with their various G blocks and mountain making improvements or modifications that everybody's just seeing what somebody else has done and saying, Hey, you know, that was really close to exactly what I needed. Let me see if I can make it fit for myself. And then I can share that with other people. I think there's been an increase in manufacturers making little small bespoke solutions. And it's great to see that coming out. Um, different solutions for touring trusts, different solutions for just all the little simple things like that. Uh, how fast you can get a show in isn't just a matter of how soon you can get the doors open so you can cram more gear in the truck. It, it's a safety environment too. So I think I've seen a lot of people really focusing on efficiencies for the shows and for making life easier on the road. But the sort of unintended consequence of that has been improved safety, just awareness. Seeing more from the ESA almost bringing us more into a, hey, we're not this little island. We're not as unique as we think we are. And we do affect other people. We, we can learn from some of the general construction practices. Um, seeing things where people are more aware of time on site, like, truck drivers and their restrictions on how far they can drive or how many hours between breaks and seeing that be more palatable as a conversation with our customers. When we have the meetings before a show goes out or a festival is getting prepped and we explain to them, here's our labor estimate. This is why we need a hotel room on site, even though we're a local company for you. Our guys working this call for you live two hours away from the festival site, so you're better off spending the money. And we've got the hotel rooms for the out-of-town riggers we're bringing in, so we just sort of hot bunk the hotel rooms and make sure everybody gets enough rest so nobody's working the 23, 24, 32-hour days. It's just an easier process. And we're really glad to see the customers, the event producers, be more receptive to that instead of pushing back saying that's just too much money. There's a, a tidbit that we learned at the uh, event safety summit, I think two years ago 
which was talking about fatigue rate. And there's no question within our industry that there's a, a perceived badge of honor when you can work a 24-hour shift. You know, you worked the load in, you went away for three hours for the show, you came back, you loaded it out. You know, look how cool we are. Um, and the tidbit, which I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact details, but it was basically that at hour 14, approximately 12 to 16 hours of working consistently, your mental acuity is equivalent to someone who has uh, consumed alcohol at a, a almost a, a 0.8 level. You're starting to get close to that intoxicated level. So uh, the story they shared was if you're driving a lift, imagine driving the lift impaired, that your judgment is uh, diminished because of the time you've worked. Um, and you think, hey, 12 hours is not that long. I mean, I get up at eight o'clock in the morning and I go 12 hours, no problem. And at eight o'clock at night, I'm feeling great. But uh, I think when you take a person and put them into a, a work environment and you add stress to having to work and the physicality, it changes the equation. So, Oh, yeah. And the industry recognizes that even though they may not even realize they've set it in place where a rigger will get a different rate for after hours. After midnight, you've got an after hours call rate. Well, that, that's not because they just want to give you more money. It's because it's harder on your body. So they have to make it an incentive to get you to come out and do that. So we're recognizing that the after hours and the long non hours are more difficult. So we just have to follow that up with the safety precautions that go along with it. Absolutely. All right. Now here's the, the hardest question of all. You have any good or bad rigor jokes? Are there good rigor jokes? Let's see. And they may not be good, but they been, could be entertaining. I, sh I should have been more prepared for that. should have been more prepared for that. Hey, you caught me on the spot. I'm, I'm pulling blanks on you. What about you? Bring, bring me a new rigor joke. A new doesn't have to be joke. a clean one. Doesn't have to be a, a clean dad style joke. Hey, all, you, all my jokes are eight year old dad jokes. I got to tell you something. So far, this this podcast is going under a, a, um, under whether or not it's explicit or not. We're in the no category. We're doing well. We haven't dropped any f bombs yet. I have right. one. So uh, a crew member goes to the butcher and they're looking for brains and they walk up to the butcher and they're looking at the display case and they see uh electrician's brains um five dollars a pound and then next to that they see uh audio guy's brains six dollars a pound and then next to that they see rigor brains a hundred dollars a pound and they look at the butcher and they say i I, I don't get this. Why are rigor brains a hundred dollars a pound? It, it, that doesn't make sense. And the the uh, butcher looks at the person and says, "Do you know how many riggers I have to kill to get a pound of brains?" That's fair. It's That's an oldie fair. but a goodie. That is a good one. That is a good one. So, well, thanks. I'll keep that in my back pocket for the next time. Absolutely. It's certainly not a dad joke, but you know, as uh, no, no. So they, they used to say on the Red Green Show, if the ladies don't find you handsome, they better find you handy. <laughs> Speaking of handy, I wanted to give a quick plug for controlbooth.com. 
someplace I spend a lot of time. And it's a, a great online community that's available to you 24-7. Um, you get answers from professionals. There's questions not only from professionals, but also from amateurs, community theater, uh, every facet of our industry. You can find uh, members at uh, controlbooth.com. Uh, two of the resources available is one, a huge wiki for uh, terms. So you don't know what automation is, you can probably look it up there. You don't know what uh, an arbor is, they're going to have the answer. Um, the other thing is just recently a calendar section where they've been working very hard to update uh, free trainings that are available. So in one place where you can look and say, hey, what trainings are available today? Great. Awesome. So certainly head over there, controlbooth.com and check it out. All right. Well, yeah. we're going to wrap this up. Are there any last comments you want to make? Any advice you want to give to our listeners? Um, any words of wisdom? Man, I, I really appreciate you contacting me and just having this opportunity. I'm really glad to see this conversation going. I'm really excited for you with this podcast. I want to see it be successful for you. And I, I really hope that I don't hold that back by any means. I'm really I, glad that we've got people in the industry interested in sharing um, and asking questions. I think that's a big thing that we can all take away is just ask more questions. We've got two ears and one mouth. Let's use them proportionally. Yeah, I think... Um... I'm an inquisitive person. I like asking questions. I like talking with people and learning about them. And uh, I wouldn't worry about, you know, uh, you know, you certainly have contributed to the, uh, the goal. I think uh, something you said earlier, which is you can learn something from everyone. And even those who are uh, considered to be, at the, the, the top of the pyramid, the, the most knowledgeable people um, like Michael Reed, you mentioned, still go out and look for information. They still look at others and say, I can learn something from them. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm fond of saying, don't take my rigging class multiple times uh, because I teach in one style. I choose to promote other trainings and there are people who might think that's counterproductive from a business standpoint. But the reality is if you learn one new thing from a new uh, teacher because of their teaching style or a piece of information that I just didn't share, it was worth the expense to do that. And so everyone gets to contribute. Everyone has input and it's not going to be a hundred percent all the time, but um, you can learn something from everyone. Uh, so as we go through this process, the guests are people who I think have something to be uh, listened to and contribute and are valued. So thank you in being willing to spend time talking with me. Absolutely. I really hope that we can all get through this mess we're in right now, this current situation quickly and safely and I hope everybody is able to come back 100% and keep on moving this industry towards safety and what we can learn from this situation. You said it was a great opportunity. Everything is an opportunity to learn. Um, every, every time we stub our toe, well, we learn, well, watch, watch where we walk. We 
got an opportunity to take positives away from this. So I hope we all can. Absolutely. Well, Ben, thank you very much for spending some time with us talking about uh, the business we all love so much. I greatly appreciate it. And for everyone else, thank you for listening. This has been episode two with uh, Ben Bryan from Reed Rigging in Chicago. Thanks for listening. And as I've been saying, keep the pin in the shackle. Thanks, everybody. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can.